2: I'm Dr. Matthew Wado here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And as always, Paul, um, I'll tell the audience first that we're going to be talking about multiple sclerosis tonight with a fantastic guest, Dr. Annette Okai. And Paul, then I'll ask you, how was my energy coming into the show? How'd you like it?
0: (laughs) No, you came in real hot tonight. That's okay. I can tell you're amped up. It's good.
2: (laughs) All right, Paul. Well, be, before we move on, would you remind the audience what is what is it that we do on this episode or on this episode on this show, Paul? What do we do on this show? <laughs> it's late, yeah. It audience, sure it's is. late. It's like ten o'clock on a weeknight, as usual. Paul and I recording a podcast.
0: It's, I mean, what else am I doing on a Monday night? Um, but as a reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And Matt, as you alluded to tonight, we had a terrific episode with Dr. Annette Okai. Who talked us through some, the diagnosis and management of multiple sclerosis? So a lot of high yield stuff tonight.
2: We yeah, and we should thank Dr. Deb Gorth, a curbsider extraordinaire, who is working tonight, uh, probably in the intensive care unit, something something heavy. Uh, she is unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, but she did write and produce this episode. So thank you to uh, Dr. Deb Gorth. And, you know, on this episode, we talk a a lot about the initial diagnosis because I think that's our guest even admits that's a tough thing to do. We talk about what initial workup we should get in primary care, all the all the different things that would be our role in this. And then we do we talk about treatment in broad strokes because, Paul, there's like 23 treatments. So we we had to stay broad on that. But we do talk about how as primary care we will partner with Dr. Okai as the neurologist or with whoever our local neurologist is. And you know, Paul, she actually really, when we asked her her intro, she really gives like her full bio almost. So I, I'm almost thinking here we should just go to the pun and let Dr. Okai introduce herself. But maybe maybe you could give her title and then I'll give you the pun. <laughs>
0: I may forestall the pun as long as possible, but Dr. Okai is the Director of Clinical Neuroimmunology and Multiple Sclerosis Research at North Texas Institute of Neurology and Headache in Plano, Texas, and she's a Clinical Associate Professor of Neurology at Texas Tech University Health Science Center. So do what you got to do, buddy.
2: You know, Paul, I I really had trouble, and I would like to, up front here, I would like to thank... um, faculty.washington.edu/chuddler/jokes.html for uh for these for these puns or or jokes which I'd like to submit. So Paul, what I like about this first one is it doesn't really work on an audio podcast, but I'm going to do it anyway. So Paul, brain. what do you call a brain connected to three eyes?
0: I I don't know, Matt. What what do you call that? A
2: brain and so, Paul, if I were to write that out for you, it'd be <laughs> <laughs> it'd be brain spelled with three eyes. I really like that one, Paul.
0: Oh, uh, that reminds me. Can I tell you a joke real quick? Sure. Um, what is a pirate's favorite letter?
2: Uh, I I is this? I'll let you say it, Paul. I, I don't know. No, no, go ahead.
0: No, it's important <laughs> that you answer it. So, what what is a pirate's favorite letter?
2: R. Is that right?
0: <laughs> You'd think it'd be R, but it'd be the C that he loves. <laughs> All right, we'll right. cut that part out.
2: <laughs> nope. Keep it in, Brent. I, I think we need to keep it in. All right, that's great. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Annette, thank you for joining us. And the first question we're going to ask you, as always, is, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, and give them a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine?
1: Thank you for having me. So I am Aneta Kai. I am a fellowship-trained multiple sclerosis expert. I did my training um, in the Philadelphia area. I went to uh, now Drexel University uh, School of Medicine. I did my residency and fellowship at Thomas Jefferson Hospital and moved to the Dallas area to practice. I'm currently Director of Clinical Neuroimmunology and Multiple Sclerosis Research at North Texas Institute of Neurology and Headache, and I hold an academic position as Associate Clinical Professor at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. Outside of medicine, I love to travel. Traveling is my passion. I go to various places, new places. I travel at least once a quarter. That's my de-stressor. That's my relief. Uh, Most people uh, may not understand this, but I get my best rest on the plane because there are no phones, pagers, emails, (laughs) or anything that I have to deal with. So that's what I do love.
0: And what place have you liked best in the past five years that you traveled to? Where have you found the most restorative or maybe even the most surprising place that you visited?
1: I will say that in the past five years, the memorable, the most memorable place, I will say, is Barcelona. Now, I've been to Barcelona several times, but I think this city is just so amazing. And every time I go, there's something new to discover. And I really love the food.
0: Oh, yeah. Seriously. So when I plan travel, like that is solely the thing I'm interested in. So, yeah, we'll have to talk after
1: (laughs) we we go out (laughs) there.
0: (laughs) You speak into my soul.
1: Food has to be uh, on the top of the list.
0: (laughs) Sure architecture history blah blah blah, but yeah, like how how are the top is is the important question yeah. here
2: my my favorite thing to ask guests is as you were coming through in your career to get to where you are what is some of the greatest advice you had and you could pick the level whether it was when you were in med school or when you were in uh, still in training or now that now that you're out practicing what what's some of your favorite advice you've received it doesn't have to be the best just any any favorite advice you like to pass on
1: I think coming up as a physician or a physician in training we are so consumed with the uh, with the whole, we're we're very consumed with the whole practice, we're consumed with the profession. And it's hard to really focus on yourself when you're focusing on patients. So along the way, uh, one thing I think as a medical student, uh, there was an attending who always said, make time to eat. And that was important. (laughs) That was very important. It may seem very trivial, but very important. Make time to eat. And then as I went along, there was another attending who said, Take time for yourself. And that's where I picked up this habit of every quarter I take a break. So some people, they take two weeks in the year and go for a long vacation and, and that's good enough for them. But for me, what I found very refreshing or taking care of myself is to break it up in little spurts. So every quarter I take time off, even if it's just a long weekend of five days to take care of myself. And then patient wise is always listen to the patient. Even though we are the experts in the field, We always have to listen to what patients are telling us because that's where you get what you need to make the best of it and take care of the patient the best that they need. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, the
2: national bank for doctors by doctors. As a doctor, the average bank isn't built for our community. They see our debt levels or limited credit history as red flags, but at Panacea Financial, they get it because they've lived it. It's a bank founded by two physicians, and they're dedicated to providing solutions for the unique needs of doctors and doctors in training, like their PRN personal loan. So if you need to cover the cost of moving for residency or fellowship, or even as you're Becoming an attending and you want to avoid credit cards or maybe refinance existing and expensive credit card debt, then check out their peer and personal loan because it offers a period of no or low affordable payments and no cosigner requirement plus a low fixed interest rate that doesn't depend on your credit score. Join the growing number of physicians nationwide that expected more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today and learn how the bank for doctors by doctors can help you. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC.
0: Folks, 10,000 is a men's performance act of our brand built for serious training. Their focus is on function, on durability, and on minimalism. They sent me a couple of pairs of shorts and I can tell you that they worked great. I just, I literally just got back from a five mile run. Listen, no big deal. Um, Did I look great? No, I looked awful, but the shorts looked good. Did I feel good? No. Again, I abused myself pretty significantly in my twenties, but I can tell you that the shorts felt fantastic. So I I can personally recommend the 10,000 shorts for whatever kind of training regimen you have, whether it is, I don't know, like flipping over tires while you're getting yelled at by some guy with a monosyllabic name. Or if you're like me and you're just running to stave off the icy cold fingers of death for just a few more years, I highly recommend 10,000 Shorts. 10,000 works with top strength and endurance athletes to co design, test, and develop their gear so you know it's heavily vetted before they show up at your door. Kit up now and get 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc slash curb. That's T E N T H O U S A N D.cc slash curb. C-U-R-B, to get 15% off. They offer free shipping, free returns, and a lifetime guarantee. So get the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts you've ever worn from 10,000. So let's let's talk about, um, let's start with our case from CashLax. So we're going to be talking, let's say, we'll call this person uh, Mrs. Smith. She's a 34-year-old elementary school teacher. She's presenting to her primary care doctor because she noticed a headache and painful eye movements over the past day that had then progressed to blurred vision in the right eye. And this has made it difficult for her to drive. She reports that she has pain behind her eye and a mild headache. There's been no associated dizziness or aura, and her pain and blurred vision have lasted for the past two days. So apparently she got a pretty quick doctor's visit with her PCP. She had been treated in the past with Toradol for migraines, but this did not provide relief of her current symptoms or change her vision for the better. While her pain could be associated with migraines, her PCP apparently realizes that we're recording an episode tonight on MS and was thinking more along the lines of optic neuritis. So this being the case in front of us, we, we have a patient who has these relatively acute vision changes and pain behind the right eye. We're, we're thinking maybe optic neuritis, which means we're, we read the episode title and we're probably thinking about multiple sclerosis. So I think as a framework, maybe you could just sort of talk us broadly about how we should think about multiple sclerosis and then obviously we can get more granular as we progress through. So just give us your broad framework about how you think about MS.
1: Multiple sclerosis can present in many different ways. So it's hard to just choose one symptom and say this is classic for it, but there are a few common symptoms, uh, common threads along the way. So vision change is one and optic neuritis where the vision change is associated mostly with pain. That could be one one, uh, presenting symptom and a common presenting symptom of MS. Um, uh, Weakness, numbness. I think what is important to realize is if the symptoms are consistent. And last thing, For more than 24 to 48 hours, that's something that should raise a flag that we're dealing with an inflammatory process such as multiple sclerosis. So this case that you just presented is uh, something that's, that's very common and it could go either way. So, some physicians may say, well, you know, she has headaches and, and the headaches are causing vision changes. Let's try a headache medication before anything else. But fortunately, they listened to the episode and said, wow, let's think about something else since it has been ongoing for the past two days, optic neuritis could be a possibility. But I think the key in this case was this symptom persisted for more than 24 hours and interfered with her function. And that was enough to get her to the doctor. And that should start uh, the process of saying, let's look at what we have here if this could be optic neuritis.
2: It it seems like what Paul, this would this this would trip me up because like with the history of migraines, I'd be maybe reassured. That's what I I don't know about you, Paul. Do you do you find that like a scary road to go down?
0: I do actually I, I was scared in a different way. Um, just because I I can always one up you for anxiety. I you know, I can I can hear myself talking to myself and just thinking like this could be, you know, we have this is a elementary school teacher, so are they in front of a computer? Are they grading tests all day long? Is this eye strain that's causing a headache? I might send them to an eye doctor. So I, I guess this might be a good time to talk through about potential mimics here that we should be concerned about or sort of other, other, other things that might belong in the differential as we're talking through this patient.
1: So great point, right? So let's talk about the most common things first. Like you said, Paul, eye strain. She has been sitting in front of the computer most of the time. But the red flag here to rule that out is that it's only one eye. So if we're thinking eye strain, then we, w- we will expect both eyes to be involved. So, Matt, to your point where uh, she has a history of migraines, yes, we know migraines can present with vision change, with pain and headache like things. So, it is one of the things that we have to be aware of, um, uh, s- uh, certainly that can mimic some symptoms of MS uh, uh, when we're talking about this. But a differential is uh, still include a lot of things. Given that she's 34 year old, I haven't heard any history of of any vascular uh, disorders such as hypertension or diabetes or anything to that effect. But if she did have that, then we would consider those as well in the differential for uh, multiple sclerosis. But given her relatively young age at 34, given that it's one eye and not both eyes, so like, okay, this can't just be computer uh, a strain that we are talking about. Then we have to uh, bring up the neuritis or the possibility of multiple sclerosis into the differential. Migraines are still in there because she has the headache, uh, but because it's persisting for, as I said, more than 24 to 48 hours. And she has tried an analgesic in the past without significant relief. And I must point out that Toradol does a pretty good job uh, for for headaches as well. Then with that being said, we have done uh, the migraine part. So now we move on. What else could it, could it be? And optic neuritis will be one. Um As I said, all the other vascular things have been ruled out. So now we say, okay, uh, Paul, to your point, probably she should see uh, an ophthalmologist given that uh, she has problem driving. That is an appropriate uh, referral as well because the ophthalmologist can dilate her eyes and see if there's inflammation in back of her eye to say this is optic neuritis or Uh, the neurologist could be the other referral. So either way, either points of referral will be appropriate for this patient.
2: Yeah, I'm wondering with the history with migraines, part of what I was getting at is, you know, patients say maybe they've had a migraine. Maybe maybe the migraine that they thought they had was another like symptom of MS that happened years ago. So probably I would want to dig into that, make sure this had been like a repetitive pattern over time and, you know, no lasting symptoms. But what other... What other things should we ask about? I'm we're going to ask you about what, what exam and what, what other <laughs> testing we might do at this initial visit, uh, aside from maybe refer her to an ophthalmologist. But what other what other things should we want to make like ask about that might help us move towards more of multiple sclerosis as a diagnosis here?
1: Great question. So first, like you mentioned, a mad is this a repetitive thing? So for people who have had migraines and they develop uh, this eye symptom and eye pain, they would say, this is quite different from my migraines I usually have. So you want to elicit that history. if they ever had loss of vision in the past, not associated with headache? That's one thing you want to ask about them. Are they having any other symptom? Because while... This teacher is focused on her eye because it has now affected her driving. She may have dismissed Does she have numbness or tingling in her hand or in her feet. That's something that, oh, this isn't important. It's just numb and tingling, but it's been numb and tingling for two days. It hasn't impacted her function, so that may not have been disclosed in the past. In terms of past medical history, things I tend to do when I try to elicit this, there are certain questions I ask. Bell's palsy is common have you had that in the past? That could be a sign of demyelination. Have you had any numbness or tingling more on one side than the other that have lasted for days or for weeks? Um, Have you had any weakness? Have you had vertigo? So those associated symptoms will lead me to say, okay, this is something that uh, in constellation, Will make me think that I'm dealing with an ongoing inflammatory process overall.
2: And from what I was reading to narrow it down, because Paul and I see a lot of patients with all of these symptoms, mm-hmm. but I, I know context is key. It, it seemed like there's a there's a common age range for people to at least initially present is is something like the the teens to the fifty year old range, like before ten and after fifty. I was reading it's it's uncommon. Can that help us narrow it down? Because Paul and I see lots of patients with like vertigo, oh, weakness, Definitely. tingling.
0: God, pins and needles. Oh, God, help me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know. On, on their pinky finger, right? Yeah, they're <laughs> tingling on the pinky finger or the big toe. So the, the median age of diagnosis is between 20 to 50 years old. But of course, you know, there are people on opposite end of the bell curve, but uh, young adults. Uh, are the most common uh, people that multiple sclerosis affect. So this lady is 34 years old, and as I said, she doesn't have any other significant history that that would lead us to think that it could be some vascular process. So the uh, the age of presentation is important, and sometimes uh, what um. Um, we tend to uh, dismiss is that a stressful event can bring on symptoms, especially if they're prime for multiple sclerosis. And what do I mean by that? So she's 34-year-old. It could be the end of the the year or the beginning of the year, and she's getting into school and all of that. And if she is prime for multiple sclerosis, she can start presenting symptoms at that point. That brings me to another differential because when sh- if she comes in and say I've been under a lot of stress recently I often see that oh you have been under a lot of stress you know let's bring your anxiety down a little and probably this will improve symptom. So that is something that also occurs and we have to take care not to fall into that trap that you are stressed. So this is making your vision worse over two days, but it has happened. And, and, Overall, multiple sclerosis is a difficult diagnosis to make um, in the absence of, you know, if you haven't done an MRI or anything else, just getting the clinical history may, may lead you to believe that, oh, there's, you know, a lot of things, anxiety going on, or it could be migraine. So we it, it's, it, it takes being a good detective to really put the pieces together.
2: It it makes me, Paul. I don't know about you. It's it's reassuring to me to hear her say it's a difficult diagnosis because I feel that way. And uh, so if you feel that if you feel that way, that that I I imagine it's okay for Paul and I to feel that way. But Paul, you looked it's, like you were going to say something. It's
1: quite okay to feel that way.
0: I, I mean, I feel that way about most things all the time. That's just kind of my stick. <laughs> um, I, I was going to ask if so, Miss Smith's... Say has a facilitated visit and makes it into your office, and you're doing your yeah. physical examination. We don't have a diagnosis yet, mm-hmm. um, but you have suspicion. I mean, I imagine you're going to do an exam that is much better than mine, and not using like a stethoscope or a reflex hammer. And you know, you'll actually do sensation testing and that kind of stuff. But what are what are the especially high yield examination maneuvers, or what are the what are the things that you pay the most attention to if you have a clinical suspicion for MS?
1: So, in terms of the neurological exam, if I have a clinical suspicion for MS, and yes, I, I understand that as pri- as primary care doctors, the neuro exam is not as in-depth for you guys as it is for me. But the eyes are important. Looking at uh, pupil dilation, a non-dilation uh is important. Looking in the eye, so doing a fundoscopic exam. In this case, if uh uh, miss Smith uh, um, I had seen her in consultation I would have looked into her eye to see if there is any papilledema so swelling up the back of the eye that would indicate inflammation to me I want to see if her pupils dilate equally or one is sluggish in dilation versus the other so that's a rapid afferent pupillary defect, uh, something that we see. I will also like to see how her eye movements are. Depending on where the lesion is, sometimes eye movement can be restricted with her presentation of optic neuritis and see if I can elicit double vision as well. And then look at reflexes, brisk reflexes is something that, you know, tells me that the communication between the spinal cord and, and all of that is, is somehow impaired. And as I said, even though she hasn't mentioned anything else, but what her motor exam looked like in her sensory exam, but if she came to me with this and I did a consultation, I'll concentrate on the eyes, I'll concentrate on the reflexes, and then uh, all the other parts of the knee neurological exam, obviously, but that will be it.
2: And it seems like with optic neuritis, it's it's often, it could be both eyes, but most of the time it's it's one eye affected. We, so you would test and you would, I guess you would test vision in in each eye to, to try to figure out if it truly is a difference in vision in one eye versus the other.
1: Exactly. So uh, thank you for that, Matt. Yes, we do, you know, Every, I, I will say that the, the, the handheld eye chart can, can help you determine, you know, a visual acuity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be severe as, you know, they're unable to see or can only count fingers uh, in that eye. But something you just said, uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm going to take us back to what would be included in the differential. It, usually it presents in one eye. But um, sometimes uh, you can have both eyes involved, sometimes one more than the other. But if we see bilateral involvement with decreased visual acuity and, and impairment of function, One differential of MS that we will uh, 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 consider will be neuromyelitis optica, which is NMO, and that can, we have a blood test for that. So that's that's just a little nugget of information for us to keep in the differential when they come present with uh, optic neuritis.
2: Annette, we uh, so we're this is this is take two here on this because uh, I of I I had a mis misunderstanding of what the APD is the afferent pupillary defect. So if you could explain it to the audience about like you know just like how we test for it and how you how you think about that like how you explain it to early learners like Paul and I are early learners <laughs> when it comes to this. <laughs>
1: So this, this is a, um, a something that can be done in the office very quickly to determine which eye is affected. So it's best done in a dimly lit room. So make sure the lights are off and give both eyes the time to dilate appropriately. And then we do the swinging flashlight test where you shine a bright light into each eye. And what happens is that with the healthy eye you have very brisk constriction of the pupils when the when the light is flashed in the eye and in the affected eye you have poor constriction so it looks more dilated and not constricting as well as the healthy eye.
2: Yeah this this sounds like it'll take some practice but it does sound like it's definitely doable and something that that we should be able to to recognize. I'm going to be terrified if I see this, Paul, on a patient.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll be impressed.
1: <laughs> Once you see it, it's easy to recognize that. It's afterwards. easy to, yeah. Yes.
0: So, so far we've been mostly focusing on a presentation consistent with optic neuritis. I'm wondering if you couldn't talk us about other potential typical presentations of MS. Like, are there any... Sort of classic, I don't know, motor or sensory presentations or anything else we should be sort of mindful of as patients uh, come into our office?
1: Definitely. So, optic neuritis, we have over 40%. Uh, and it ranges from 40 to 70% of patients as they're presenting symptoms. But there are other common presentations that occur, such as transverse myelitis. So that's inflammation in the spinal cord. And that can produce symptoms such as weakness or sensory symptoms on one side more than the other, difficulty walking. We have brainstem syndrome. And what does that uh, include? They can have um vertigo or this arthria, uh, with slurred speech or uh, difficulty with balance uh, keeping in mind that most of these symptoms will be continuous for more than 24 hours um, in a way so those are some of the other presenting signs uh, of uh, that would lead us to think about multiple sclerosis as a possible diagnosis yeah
2: that's great yeah I I, I always. Well, not necessarily transverse myelitis, but uh, some of those things like the speech and the vertigo, the walking difficulty, those are sort of in my very primitive illness script for multiple sclerosis. Those are some of the ones that would hit for me. In addition to the eye, so what we've talked we've talked a lot about a lot of things so far. Uh, optic neuritis usually one eye. It's going to be painful. Vision changes could be, but it could be both eyes.
1: Mostly painful. Sometimes you may have painless, but mostly Mm -hmm. painful. Yeah.
2: And some other things just to recap, when we're initially taking the history, we're going to ask about vascular risk factors to make, you know, think about, could this be a vascular issue, a stroke? We're going to ask about history of migraines, history of Bell's palsy. Our physical exam is going to be a very complete neurologic exam, uh, focusing on the eye, and re- we're gonna test reflexes, balance, all those uh, all those things, um, probably a more thorough exam than we we normally do in primary care, at least neurologic exam. And then um, I think now it would be good to move on a little bit and talk about like, if we're the primary care doc, seeing this uh, Miss Smith at the first visit, w- worried about optic neuritis, what else should we do? Um, she's going to get a referral to you probably to ophthalmology or neuro-ophthalmology. What other testing should we order? What else should we do before we send her to you? Are we? Yeah, let's, let's take it from there.
1: If possible, and and I say if possible because sometimes, um, uh, based on several things, it's easier for a specialist to get an MRI. But I've had primary care doctors who uh, order the initial MRI of the brain if if a brain orbits depending on what the patient is presenting with. If it's a, a weakness or something, if they need a spinal MRIs. So, if possible the primary care doctor can order that to get it started. But what is easy to do for the primary care doctor is also look at inflammatory labs. So uh, we want to look at things like the ANA, ESR, CRP, those labs that indicate that there is increased inflammation in the body, that's something that that can uh, start the process going for the patient. And then other mimics of MS, so other inflammatory disorder that can look like MS, so we also want to look at rheumatoid factor, uh, ACE level, because rheumatoid arthritis, uh, sarcoidosis, a uh, lupus, they are all inflammatory disorders that can have symptoms similar to MS, and it's important that we have cross out that we cross out T's and dot our I's to say we have looked at all those other inflammatory disorders, and they are not contributing to the vision symptom that the patient is experiencing, all the numbness and tingling that they have. So the easiest thing for the primary doctor primary care doctor to do will be to order the labs. Some go the, the extra mile and do the initial, order the initial MRI to see if that can be done. But if they cannot, that's not an issue. It, they, it can always be done when they get to us or the ophthalmology.
0: And the eternal question, is that with contrast, with and without, but so let's say we're feeling our oats and we actually want to order imaging, what is what is the best way to order the MRI for you?
1: It's best to order it with contrast. Um, because contrast tell us if there is active inflammation at the time. So with Miss Smith, uh, this began two, two days ago. We think there's active inflammation. We want that confirmation if we see inflammation of her optic nerve. So the contrast, uh, will Light up the lesion, as we call it, that's our jargon. So we'll see enhancement or some would say active signal on the MRI. So it's best to get it with contrast if that's what we're thinking. Then it gives us dissemination in time for the patient.
0: And I feel like I often see, especially when our, my neurology colleagues are working this up, they actually order brain and cervical spine. Is that typical practice? Or, or should we just be doing the brain in my dumb-dumb my primary care setting?
1: That is best practice for a neurologist. Um, coming from a primary care doctor, if we get the brain <laughs> MRI, we will really appreciate that. Um, if you're feeling very generous and you can get both of them approved, that will be awesome. But um, uh, most, um, and we're being practical here, most insurance company will want to see brain lesions before they, they consider paying for cervical spine lesion if you don't have any other symptoms. So... Uh, uh, Best practice is both brain and cervical spine MRI, but it can be a logistical nightmare for the primary care physician if they keep getting denials. Whereas once we have certain things in uh, documented and what we're looking for, it may be an easier road.
2: That's nice of you to say. You're just like, yes, yeah, it's easier for you. me to get. It. People, <laughs> the insurance companies don't fight me as much at MRIs cause I know you, cause, because you as a neurologist, uh, that's probably appropriate. I, I do, I did just want to comment on the labs because we, you know, on the show, our audience, our our audience, they're go-getters. They want to, they're going to do, they want to send you this patient, like wrapped up with a bow. Like they want to have a lot of testing so you can have a really- They're doing
0: the LP in the office. They're looking for legal funnel bands That's right.
2: That's right. Our (laughs) audience, above average clinicians. um, And and, and, (laughs) so, but I, I, I would say I probably, as far as like, I probably would- ANA or ESR, CRP, maybe an ANA, I would, some some of those, certainly ESR, CRP, I would probably get like um, just base, some basic like primary care, more primary care labs. Sometimes the ANA can just be like, once you get somebody with a positive ANA, then you're down this road. So if I'm not thinking there's any other things of lupus, I might leave that to my you know, neurologist colleague to decide if we need to do that. And like sarcoidosis as well. Is there any other symptom that I'm thinking about sarcoid, whether I'm going to look at the chest or whatever? I'm I'm not sure, Paul, if you think uh, how you feel about that as well, but those, I'm always scared to order like these giant panels if I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all the results.
1: So how can we, so as a, what I will, um, Narrow it down to is vitamin B twelve, mm-hmm. thyroid, ESR, CRP. Those are things that oh, if you see it, see them being abnormal, you're comfortable with, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, and and if I'm worried, someone has lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, you know, I'm very comfortable ordering those, and uh, yeah. I think um, that that would just be my practice not to. Indiscriminately order some of those other tests where you, if you get a false positive, the patient's like, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's my thing. But I, I think this is a great list you've given us.
1: Yeah, I mean for MS, we will see a mildly increased ANA in most cases, not all of them. Oh no! Oh. But we will see, you know, a low tighter. You know anything below 1 to 160, 1 to 80 can be, you will see that in multiple sclerosis. I think what, the reason why we order those things because if someone has the tendency to have an autoimmune disorder such as multiple sclerosis, their chances of a secondary autoimmune disorder increases. So it's not uncommon for us to have lupus and, M- and MS in the same patient. It's not uncommon for us to have rheumatoid NMS in the same patient because the risk increases with just having one, you buy yourself another one, basically. So that's why we do all all those testing and we have to differentiate that this isn't lupus that we are seeing because lupus can cause vision changes as well, Mm optic neuritis as well but uh if uh sending the patient to the uh, specialists if we can get the standard ESR CRP B12 vitamin uh folate TSH uh that's a good place to start and we can take it from there
2: and with the i think maybe now is a good time to talk about the What is it the 2017 mcdonald criteria for like when do we know we've made a diagnosis i I guess if this was just a one-time thing she had we would maybe call this a clinically isolated syndrome if i'm trying to sound cool to in front of me you are
1: signing very
2: cool right now so can you (laughs) tell us like what's the how do we make the how do we go from a what is a clinically isolated syndrome and then how do we get to a, a full diagnosis of ms
1: the classical definition of MS is dissemination in time and space, where you have two separate clinical events in different systems. And, and, and now you have uh, multiple lesions in multiple, sc- uh, in multiple places. So multiple sclerosis, you've had. Dissemination in time, two different events and in, in space with all the lesions. But uh, the 2017 McDonald criteria really tried to, to help us make the diagnosis with all the tools that we have and to risk stratify patients. So, what we found is that patients will have one episode. But when you do look at all the other testing, like the MRIs, and you look at CSF results, and you see oligoclonal bands, everything falls in line with MS, but they haven't had a second event. And we were holding off on, on treating those patients. So the coined the phrase clinically isolated syndrome, you had one event, and you had to wait for a second event to make it definite MS. Well, we know that waiting is not the best thing. We need to treat these patients and treat them early. So what the McDonald criteria did was bring these early patients, these clinically isolated patients, into the fold if they met all these other criteria by using MRIs, by using CSF, so doing the lumbar puncture, to now make the criteria. So if you have had one event and you have oligoclonal bands in your CSF, you have met dissemination in time and space. If you have had one event and you had enhancing lesion and non-enhancing lesion on MRI, you have met, the dif- you have fulfilled dissemination in time and space. And now we can treat you early instead of waiting for more damage to occur to to then make the diagnosis. So clinically isolated syndrome was really called early MS early on, but now is considered MS. Meet if you met all the other paraclinical testing with that.
2: My understanding of the reason this is important is because you want to get people on these disease modifying therapies as early as possible when they have that early inflammation we think maybe that delays progression or just is going to be beneficial is that how you is that how you think about it? is that why they the uh, the biggest reason why they did this
1: yes so starting patients early on on disease modifying therapy we found in clinically isolated syndrome delayed a second relapse for about a year in our uh, uh, early therapies that we have. So by delaying a a relapse for a year, you have actually saved the brain tissue. And so when someone does have this second attack, then they are in the relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis Uh, phase. So relapsing MS as we now call it is uh, the most common uh, category that we have of MS and this is where people have a relapse, they recover either either completely or uh, partially and they're stable for a period of time and then they have another episode and so they have these fluctuations over time. So that is relapsing MS. With secondary progressive MS, that comes after relapsing MS after a certain period of time where patients aren't having uh, frequent relapses or they may be having shallow relapses over time and developing more disability. And then the last category that we have is primary progressive MS, where they have an attack and they never fully recover and they con- just continue to develop disability over time. So it's just a steep slope as opposed to a staggered slope over time. So uh, the categories just to um, uh, review is clinically isolated syndrome. Relapsing multiple sclerosis, secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, and primary progressive di- uh, multiple sclerosis. Primary progressive is in a category of its own. The other three all fall under uh, relapsing.
2: And Annette, I was I was surprised to read because I had always I, I didn't realize uh, they said that relapsing MS oftentimes. They, they eventually stop relapsing and then they just sort of slide into secondary progressive. They've just, because I guess after certain relapses, you don't necessarily always fully recover. You don't re- fully regain all the function after a relapse. And then over time, they just accrue so many hits that they're just sort of, they have more disability and they start to just progress slowly. Is that sort of how it goes?
1: Yes, so that's a good understanding of it. So if you have so many relapses over time, you tend to lose your neurological reserve. So you have a fixed amount of neurons, and if you keep damaging them, you don't have uh, the reserve to then recover and say, okay, this, I can still get back some function and all of that. So you lose neurological reserve and then degeneration start to occur. And that's where you slide into the secondary progressive phase. And so it's important that we start treatment and continue treatment early to preserve as much as we can.
2: Yeah, and it seemed like there was no way to predict early on, like, who was going to progress rapidly and who wasn't. and Because I guess there are some people who just have a relatively benign course and it never causes really severe disability, but other people eventually become progressively
0: more disabled. Correct. Don't you love it when you make a small change and suddenly everything becomes so much easier? That's what it's like when you start hiring with Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. No other job site takes care of you like Indeed because with Indeed, you only have to pay if an applicant meets your must-have requirements. It is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest in 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Indeed is doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. Visit Indeed.com slash Internal Medicine to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash internal medicine. That's Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed.
2: This episode is brought to you by Med Mastery. Audience, you heard us talk about Med Mastery before. It is an online learning platform, an award-winning online learning platform endorsed by the British Medical Association. And they have great courses with super practical things like EKG, point of care ultrasound, mechanical ventilation, fluids and electrolytes with the great Dr. Joel Toff, how to interpret chest x-rays, echocardiography, lots of really useful stuff. They offer an affordable subscription that's gonna give you access to their entire course catalog. All their courses are peer-reviewed and CME accredited. Plus, if you're in a residency program or running a residency program, then check it out cuz a lot of people are using them and they do offer group rates. So reach out to the friendly folks at MedMastery and they can accommodate you. Listeners of this show can claim a 15% lifetime discount on any of their subscriptions. Just go to medmastery.com/curbsiders and use the code CURBSIDERS15. Again, that's medmastery.com/curbsiders and use the code curbsiders 15.:
0: Well, it, it sounds like we're drifting towards treatment, which I'm excited to hear about, but I, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about pathophysiology because there was like groundbreaking earth shattering the Twitter on fire um, article that came out relatively recently that, that touched on the pathophysiology. So I, I would love to hear um, how you break this down for patients or, or sort of even your primary care colleagues as to what's going on here, and if maybe you could sort of talk about Epstein-Barr while you're at it, that would be even better.
1: All right. So pathophysiology of MS. So we do not have a one known cause of MS. We know there are several risk factors and the immune system has to be primed for this to occur. Uh, One thing I like to remind patients and probably my primary care colleagues is that MS really is an immunological disease. It's an immunological dysfunction affecting the nervous system as opposed to the other way around. So the immune system is dysfunctional, and that can be due to different factors. And when that happens, then it attacks the uh, uh, central nervous system causing MS. What are some of the risk factors that we know of? Well, uh, low vitamin D level is a risk for MS. Uh, the further away from the equator you live, is a risk for MS. You also have family history of autoimmune disorder. That's a small part that comes along with it. And then other environmental factors. And every month or so, we come up with a new risk factor for MS, childhood hmm. obesity, um, uh, exposure to certain viruses. And then um, this year, A landmark paper was published about EBV, and EBV, also known as mono in in teenagers, being listed as a very common risk factor for MS. It's important to point out here that EBV doesn't cause MS. EBV has been found in um, majority of MS, so it's a uh, we we look at it as a risk factor, not a causal factor for MS. Um, we have looked at many viruses in the in the past: e, uh, EBV, CMV, HTLV, looking for an infectious looking for an infectious cause uh, that would trigger the immune system. But uh, this was a longitudinal study. So for about 20 years, they follow this group. And and, and we must say that this group was very limited, uh, mostly veterans. And what they found that the, the virus that was common in everyone that developed MS was EBV. What's the implication for this? That's the question. For those who already have MS, not a whole lot we can do, but do we look towards um, what we can do if we identify other risk factor? Can we vaccinate against EBV to reduce this? The thing about EBV is that it's a ubiquitous virus. Something, you know, is very ubiquitous, but not everyone who has EBV gets MS, but 99% of MS patients get EBV. So now we have to look at the implications and see what we can do in terms of reducing the risk factors for those who are prone to this disease.
2: The other, and this is just a a primary care thing, so I wanted to mention, there was an article I saw in Journal Watch by, it was Rogers et al., it was in the journal Brain in 2021, just looking at the impact of smoking cessation on disease progression, and it just seems, not surprisingly, um, current and former smokers had worse outcomes with multiple sclerosis, and that quitting seems to help with decline. So, I think in primary care we're always looking for ways to get our patients to quit smoking. I guess this would be another another way. Do you do you talk to your patients about that as well?
1: I do talk to them all the time about that in my in my in the line I like to use Uh, is that, you know, uh, lung transplant has been perfected and people do it commonly, but we haven't been able to transplant the brain. So (laughs) (laughs) you you need to stop smoking. But the the, uh, pathophysiology behind that is the same because uh, smoking really uh, uh, reduces the elasticity of the blood vessels. And when those blood vessels and blood walls become weak, uh, very weak, that allows those inflammatory cells to then enter the brain more uh, freely. And so you have. As a smoker, you have more severe relapses, you have more weakening of your blood vessel causing more degeneration over time and, and that is uh, and then that your disease just progresses with certain things that this best smoking does to the body. So yes, we counsel them all the time. that is important not only for their lungs and overall function, but for their brain health as well.
2: I think we should definitely move to talking about treatment a little bit. I'd be curious to hear how you tackle this or how you talk to patients about what treatment they might give. Maybe I can just, just to keep our case coming along with us, so let's let's ground it in the case here. Miss Smith, we got an MRI of her brain and we, we did see some inflammation. Uh, we got the MRI. We also included the orbits, So we did see evidence of optic neuritis there. And then we saw... An old lesion that was not enhancing, that we thought was maybe evidence of a prior uh, prior episode. So, so I guess we've we've shown dissemination in space and time. And now we're going to talk to her about treatment. How might you talk to Miss Smith about treatment?
1: Okay, so um, we have MRI that shows non-active lesion and a upright MRI that shows enhancing lesion. And so she fulfills dissemination in time and space. So for her acute symptom, for what she presented with right away, we all, always have to think about preserving the organ. So it has impacted her, her driving. So the first thing we want to do is treat acutely, and usually for relapses or attacks, as patient. uh, call it, some patients call it, we use high dose oral steroids. And uh, uh, I've had few of my primary care colleagues, when I tell them the dose, they're like, what? I have not uh, used that before, but it's essential that we we reduce inflammation as much as possible. So we use high dose steroids, which is one gram uh, a methylprednisolone IV for three to five days. Uh, sometimes we modify it because patients can't get to the hospital on time and we give them a ton of oral steroids. I thought this um, was a
2: typo, Paul. I think I saw 1,250 milligrams
1: of prednisone. Is that yes. like in the ballpark? Yes. Well, Twelve hundred and fifty milligrams of pregnancy. And so how that's- many tablets is that? <laughs> so, so, so to help the patient along, I give them fifty milligram tablets, not the twenty. So fifty milligram tablets, and that's twelve in the morning, twelve at night, uh, for three days with omeprazole for the stomach. And even the pharmacist call and say, "Are you sure you are not tearing this patient' gut lining up? I'm like, "I'm sure," because aspirin can do the same. Thing, so yes, uh, but but we if you, we, we want to treat in a timely manner. So think about it: is Friday afternoon, and this patient come comes in. They've had an optic neuritis attack, and you can first in the time of COVID, sending them to the ER is not the best thing, you know. Sometime, so being practical, you call it into the pharmacy, twelve tablets twice a day uh, with. Pepsid or Meprazole or whatever is needed to reduce that information as, as soon as possible. So, or if you can get them wherever in uh, in, in normal times, I would like to say they go to the infusion center, the ER, and get IV, mm-hmm. one gram solimedrol. But three to five days. Though so that's standard for treatment of MS relapses. Now in terms of long-term treatment, those we call disease-modifying therapy. And they're called that because we have learned over time that they really change the course of the disease. So they really reduce relapses. So the three um, goals of disease-modifying therapy is to reduce relapses, reduce MRI back activity and reduce disability progression, which they have been shown to do over time. And, and so uh, we, you want them on long-term therapy because Mrs. Smith, it, she wants to drive and she doesn't want this to happen to her. Again, she doesn't want to be in classroom and, and not be able to see her students or see the board or something of that kind. So based on her MRI, she has met criteria. Then we talk about treatment options. And there are different treatment options. And I always like to to tell them how far we have come. MS has been around for over 150 plus years, but therapy was only approved in 1993. Since then, there has been an explosion of growth in in the amount of uh, treatment options that we can offer to patients. So, and they all have very unique mechanism of action. So um, we first started with self-injectable therapies, uh, interferons and clotermic acetate uh, was our standard therapy for years. And then about 10 years later, we had in- infusion uh, come about and then we had oral therapies. Uh, and that has just been improving over time. And we now have about 21 FDA approved therapy for MS. Um, it's it because MS is so heterogeneous. Um, it's also important to to look at the whole patient when you are making the decision on what to start the patient on. So what 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 does the MRI look like? Have they had full or partial recovery? from their relapse, do they have any residual disability? We also look at comorbidities, and that's something I also um, collaborate with my primary care colleagues on, uh, because if there are other comorbidities, we want to uh, monitor for drug-drug interaction. We also want to monitor for certain side effects that uh, certain things may be exacerbated with, with the patient. And there are other things that I will rely on my primary care colleagues to follow up on. So uh, for an example, uh, several of our oral therapies, we have to make sure that... Um, certain medications, such as heart medication, beta blockers, or uh, 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 ACE inhibitors, uh, calcium channel blockers, that may not be the best person for certain oral medication. Um, So I have to, uh, uh, and why am I saying this? Let's look at Mrs. Smith for an example. She's 34 years old and she does not have any history of hypertension or diabetes, but she has a history of migraines. Beta blockers are used for migraines and certain other anti are used for migraines. So we have to make sure that we do not have that overlap if I do decide to put her on an oral therapy. Or uh, for uh, another patient who I may decide to do an infusible therapy, I may need mammogram or pap smear or um, uh, a certain um, skin exam. Prior to starting in as their own treatment, that's something as a neurologist, I will not feel comfortable ordering a mammogram for my patient. I'll, I'll uh, have the primary care doctor do that. So the collaboration uh, when it comes to therapy is key um, as well.
2: And timing of vaccines, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yes. So, especially now in the era of COVID, where uh, we're getting vaccine, like uh, we're getting the flu shot, that's something that's important. So, several of our therapies are immunosuppressive therapy. So, we are we are suppressing the immune system because that's w- that that is the dysfunction that is occurring, and we need that to be in the lower range. But because of the mechanism of action, the immunosuppressive uh, properties of certain uh, uh, therapies, the patient may have a blunted response to certain vaccines. So we have to be careful in timing of the dosing of the medication and when the patient gets vaccinated. And so that's also important that we keep in contact with the primary care doctor who's administering the vaccination to say no, um, the patient may get the vaccination after a certain period of time, or we may decide to hold the therapy while they get vaccinated and required. Usually, for vaccine, we want to wait at least, we want them vaccinated a month before we do most of our dosing. But if that is not the case, and we really have to treat that patient, then we set a time schedule for them to get the vaccine. And I'm speaking mostly of attenuated or inactivated vaccine or MRA vaccine, because for MS patients, we do not recommend live vaccine, because that may stimulate the immune system. And Sometimes um, there are lots of uh, studies on this and it's off. it's 50/50. it may lead to increase in immunologic activity and result in a relapse. but there are other uh, 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 studies that say not necessarily, but just as a general rule of thumb we we'll avoid live vaccines in MS patients.
2: Can I ask about the, because Paul, we've talked about a couple other, we talked about IBD, we talked about rheumatoid arthritis. I know an inflammatory bowel, uh, they tend to just like hit them with the immunosuppression and just keep it running because if you let up on it, it they tend to flare. With MS, is it one of those things where you can hit it hard and then sort of back off over time and and maybe uh, decrease the intensity of the immune suppression or the therapy? Um how what's the is there any like broad treatment approach to it
1: so great question uh so um ms is a lifelong disease so right now we treat people lifelong uh, and i say that cautiously because right now we have studies going to say as people age and what happens naturally as 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 humans age is that the immune systems tend to go down naturally. So do we need to continue with these immunosuppressants if they're aging and they're having an aging immune suppressant. That question has not been answered yet. We're doing this study to come up with the answer. There have been several small studies that show that when you stop a uh, immunologic treatment, a disease modifying treatment, there are some patients who tend to relapse and there are some patients who tend to do well. So with this wide, uh, uh, multi-center study going on, we may have a better answer. But at this time, we continue to treat until we have that answer, because patients can be in their sixties and still having relapses when we expect them to be on a decline in the immune system. And then there are some people who have been stable for a long time ago, but, uh, for a long time, and don't need anything before. But we have no way of telling those people, uh, telling who those people are at this time. So we'll wait for that study to read out. But in the meantime, we continue to treat. With that being said, though, there are a few treatments that we hit hard, as you said. So the way it their dose is that we treat them and they, um, their full treatment may take one or two years and then they do not need any further treatment for a few more years after that. So they are not being treated continuously, but their immune system has already been primed to remain low for years that they, that they are being treated that the effect of the medication mm-hmm. can last that long.
0: I was going to ask, just in terms of, again, sort of working collaboratively, in the primary care setting, are there labs that we should be checking routinely that would be helpful? Like, for instance, are you following inflammatory markers to monitor um, treatments? So should we be getting sort of serial CRPs or ESRs? And or should we be checking other labs to, to, for medication side effects? Like, what's what's helpful and sort of typically done uh, for these, these patients after they start on treatment?
1: So typically, the labs that we check, liver function, blood count, and vitamin D, those are the three main things. We do not do serial uh, ESR or CRP. Uh, That does not provide us a whole lot of uh, information, whether they increase or decrease over time. Um, Vitamin D, we want to make sure that the patient is... is, um, um, in normal range uh, and not deficient over time, and liver function because most of our medications are metabolized through the liver, so we do that every three months, as a matter of fact. And for some patients, it's easier to go to the primary care doctor to get that done than coming to to the neurologist. One word of caution I have for my uh primary care colleagues is that when you do the CBC, because we are um uh in uh immunosuppressing the patient, um uh, there may be a shock when you see the white blood cell count or the lymphocyte count and it's practically very low and we have to say, no, you do not need to send them to the hematologist to be worked up for anything. This is what we are doing to them. So the blood cell count is something that with most of our therapies, which are immunosuppressive, may be mostly abnormal, especially the white blood cell count and the lymphocyte count, but that's where we want them to be. But basically, the three main, main things are the CBC, CMP, and vitamin D levels.
0: And the vitamin D, are we more aggressive about repletion, just giving the, the correlation there? Like, is there a higher reference range? Or like, I, I'm always kind of agnostic about it in the first place, but it seems like this patient population, <laughs> I actually have to pay attention to it. So
1: um, yes, what are we yes. doing with those
0: numbers specifically?
1: Yes, we want them in mid to high range as much as possible so um um one of my 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 safe prescription is the weekly ergo uh for months. Because uh, we need to keep them high, and mid to high level range over time. We have to be very aggressive with yeah. replacement over time because vitamin D is a soluble vitamin. And if they take daily vitamins, they may hang around. I don't know what's the range for most laboratories, but 30 is what I see here mostly. And 30, that's still very low. We want them 50 or above if that's the range oh, wow. that they're using. Yes.
2: I wanted to refer the audience, uh, the annals had an in the clinic article uh, on multiple sclerosis in 2021 that really has a list of all the, the medications and really nicely mm-hmm. says like what some of their side effects are and interactions and things. So that would be a good thing because I think we, we can't, we're going through in broad strokes here because there's just too many to talk about on the podcast. But I like the fact like what I'm hearing here is we we're going to need to look up the individual agents probably be in contact with the neurologist, at least to know what to look out for, especially the first mm-hmm. time we see some of these. And then we're going to be monitoring like the blood counts, the comprehensive metabolic panel so we can see the LFTs, making sure they're vaccinated, mm-hmm. screened for cancer, this kind of stuff that we can do in primary care. Miss Smith, um, just to bring it back for a second, we treated her very promptly. We We got in touch with you. Uh, we were worried about this optic neuritis we, we hit her with high dose steroids because we wanted to do that quickly because we want to preserve organ function as you said and let's say now she's seeing us she's seeing you um, things have calmed down a little bit um and she she's talking to you about disease modifying therapy but she just wants to know like what's my prognosis uh, how is this going to affect my life I'm 34 I'm hoping to have like kids and it's- How do you talk to her about that? I imagine you have that conversation a lot.
1: I do have that conversation a lot. So first I try to reassure her that, uh, um, and I think most people, when they hear the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, the first thing that comes to mind is disability is wheelchair. So I try to assure patients like this is disability is not an outcome anymore if we start treatment early and stay on treatment, um, and and then I give a list of pros and cons. You know, um, what what's working, what we what's favorable, and what we're concerned about that we need to work towards. Uh, so we talk about you know how did she recover from her initial. Uh, relapse. Uh, so a good recovery is a good sign. Um, partial recovery, not so good. And uh, what her MRI looks like, and 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 how we can reduce inflammation over time for her to lead a complete life. I try to reassure patient that uh, with a uh, proper treatment, disability is not an outcome. Um, but what we know that if we don't treat properly and there's high disability uh, uh, rates in someone, that can reduce their life lifespan because uh, then complications of MS then affect how long they live. But with the therapies that we have right now, it they are very effective in uh, reducing disability that people can live full lives once they start and stay on treatment. For Ms. Smith, she is concerned about having children in um, in the future, and this is very doable for her for most of our therapies. Yes, we have to be cautious uh, cautious about um, her being on treatment. Most of them, we do not recommend that patients get pregnant while on treatment, but with proper planning. And timing, they can have, it has to be a planned pregnancy. Um, They can have full um, uh, pregnancy. I must point out that having multiple sclerosis does not put someone at high risk uh, for a high risk pregnancy. It does not result in uh, fetal retardation, and it does not result in premature birth just the disease as acid on. But our our disease modifying therapy can be teratogenic if they get pregnant. So that's why it has to be planned. Uh, There are only one or two uh, of our disease modifying therapy that um, sometimes we allow patients to stay on, but the majority is we have to plan it. It can still be done and it has been done uh, successfully in multiple cases.
2: You know, there's there's a bunch of other stuff we could potentially talk about. I mean, I, I again, I, I'll refer the audience to this in the clinic article because they talk about symptom management for things like spasticity, neuropathic pain, depression, some of the bowel and bladder symptoms and um, like heat intolerance, things like that.
1: I think we should mention that. A li- I think we should uh, talk about that a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So, why do I why do I think we should talk about that? Because uh, what I like to tell patients is that MS comes with baggage. So you don't just have MS and you take your disease modifying therapy and that's fine. MS comes with a whole lot of things because of these uh, uh, systems that are affected. So, in terms of weakness, in terms of spasticity, in terms of bowel and bladder dysfunction, those are things that even if we give our best treatment, as we would like to say, and decrease inflammation over time, because the damage has already been done, those symptoms are still going to occur. So you will need symptom management. And what uh, predicts quality of life is if you treat the symptoms that the patient is experiencing at that time. So for improved quality of life, we need to treat symptoms as best as we can. And so depending on what is affected, uh, we treat with disease-modifying therapy, and then we treat the symptom. Uh, if they're having bowel and bladder symptoms, we treat you know, for neurogenic bladder and sometimes bringing a urologist if needed. If they're having motor symptoms, we make sure rehab is part of their treatment plan. Um, If they're having sensory symptoms, we have medication for that. Spasticity, sleep issues. If someone isn't sleeping well because of symptoms, they get fatigued during the day that impact their their daily function. And then you just have that uh, circle going and we need to break that.
2: It is yeah I mean the the range of symptoms I mean of course it can it can affect you know lots of different organs but looking at this list of symptoms in this table it's table number 3 in the annals uh, in the clinic article it's a lot of medications that I'm comfortable prescribing a lot of conditions that I'm comfortable at least tackling initially. So mm-hmm. I think in primary care, these this some of this symptom management is stuff that it, it should be within our wheelhouse, Paul. I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but it it the the list is it's stuff we deal with maybe not all at once like you might with someone who right. has multiple sclerosis, but yeah. we deal with some of these things. So Paul, you know, we've talked a lot here. I'm wondering if you think there's any holes in what we're we're talking here. I mean we've gotten Mrs. Smith to the point where we're talking to her about long-term planning and we've, we've, we're have we've doing the good primary care stuff. We're getting around disease modifying therapy. Anything else you think we need to put Mrs. Smith through before we uh, let Annette go?
0: I mean, I, I hate to do it, but we've touched on it, but I feel like we, we've not talked directly about flares and sort of talking about sort of mitigation of symptoms, how to recognize them. Are there any particular triggers we should be counseling patients for? I feel like that's one area, at least for us to recognize, if not directly manage. I feel like that might be helpful.
1: Yeah, I think it's good good because sometimes they may present to your office first. So let's talk about relapses and flares. So one thing MS is characterized by relapses. And while the goal of disease modifying therapy is to reduce relapses, sometimes we have breakthrough. And and so uh, let's define what a relapse is. So a relapse is either one, a new neurological symptom that the patient has not experienced before and is continuous for more than 24 to 48 hours in the absence of fever, fatigue, chill, or any kind of extreme stressor. So that's one definition of a relapse. The second definition is the old symptom, which had been stable for a long period of time, uh, increases uh, significantly and is stable, once again, for more than 24 to 48 hours, not stable, but constant for more than 24 to 48 hours. In the absence, and this is important, of infection, fatigue, stress. Now, I keep saying infection. Why, why do I say that? Is that if there is an infection, you have lots of inflammatory cells in the body fighting off the infection, and those inflammatory cells are the same cells that irritate the nerve and damage the nerve. And the most common things I see with my MS patients is either they have a urinary tract infection or a sinus infection and the vision starts to go blurred or they start to be numb and tingling and they call and say, I'm having a relapse just like the first time around. Well, the first thing I do if anyone calls my office, the first thing my staff does is to make sure we check CBC, urinalysis, because the top three causes of patients calling for infection, uh, for a relapse is infection, infection, infection. <laughs> why do, why do I do a uh, urinalysis? Because, um, their symptoms. May not uh, uh, be apparent so they may not have the back pain they may not have uh, other classic sign of a urinary tract infection, but when you do the urine you see a, a urinary tract infection right there or you know they're all uh, have a sinus infection. Or for here in Texas, they went out in the 97 degree heat at six flags and the next day they're weak and unable to walk. Well, that's not a relapse. If it's caused by an infection, if it's caused by extremes of uh, temperature or they have a fever, a chill, we call it a pseudo relapse. So once we rule out uh, no signs of infection, no, um, uh, signs of fatigue or, you know, death in the family two or three times over. Then it's a true relapse. And then that's when we bring in the relapse treatment protocol of steroids again.
2: The twenty-four tablets of fifty milligram prednisone, <laughs> Paul.
1: Oh, uh, IV one gram solimetrol yeah. daily. <laughs> okay,
2: yes. and so and we want to start that as soon as possible once we're Listen. convinced it's a true relapse and they're not having yeah. some of these phenomena that are caused by hot weather exposure or fever infection that sort of thing. Okay, correct. Which is the pseudo relapse. Uh, yes. Well, this, yeah, I mean. I think um I'm definitely gonna want some hand holding the first time <laughs> I try to pull the trigger on this very, very high dose steroid for a relapse, but this has been great and I know there's more ground to cover, but I think we've Paul, I think we've done hero's work here where Annette has I done hero's. as per
0: usual. Yeah.
2: Annette has done hero's work. You and I just we're just dunkles asking it. questions. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so, this this is great. Annette, at this point, I, I think we should ask you for some take-home points. If there's maybe like two or three things you really want the audience to remember from this discussion tonight, what would those be? And and then we'll let you go. We, we have to let you get on with your evening, but this has been so much fun hanging out.
1: So I think what I would like the audience to do is to get the patient early uh, enough to the neurologist. So refer early on. Uh, that that is key. We know that uh, preserving brain function is something that is important and that we need to do. So early referral is important. Uh, Second, collaborate with your friendly uh, neurologist or MS specialist in uh, providing comprehensive care to the patient. So in terms of monitoring the liver function or monitoring for malignancies or comorbidities uh, making sure that uh, that um, drug interactions or uh, increasing side effects are managed appropriately and also if um, there is a hint of a relapse and you need the neurologist on board call them early enough so that they can provide you with either advice or take on the care of the patient. But uh, I, as a MS specialist, always available to to my, my referring physicians and whoever needs to, so I'm sure there are others who are willing to do this soon.
0: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I thought it wasn't going to happen. Uh, get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, it's time for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
2: And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, so we want your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Deb Gorth, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight because she's literally saving lives, uh, I also wanted to thank the team at Podpaste who helps with production and editing. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. A reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org if you want to collect CME credit. And then, Paul, with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
0: And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.